Hey, we're going to have about a 30 second delay for those of you who are tuning in live right now. Uh, kind of the same drill as last video that we had um, because we're streaming on multiple different platforms. Not every platform is able to start uh, within the first 30 seconds, so there's about a 30 second lag. And give me just a second and then we'll do our introduction and go from there. Okay, how do I sound now? That doesn't sound, it sounds, it's fine, it'll work. Oh, okay. I can use the internal mic if I have to, but it just, it, it sounds better using my regular microphone. Yeah, I think. Because it's not quite as echoey and. I hear you. Yeah, it'll be high, fine. That'll work. Higher definition. Okay, so for those of you who are tuning in live, welcome to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. Uh, tonight we are discussing the Kalam cosmological argument, and uh, possibly, if we have enough time, a little bit about how the view of Molinism uh, would tie into this specific argument. But uh, we'll see where we get on time. This is this is going to be with the author, blogger, and debater Evan Minton. Uh, should be should be a good conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So stay tuned with us. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Okay, so once again, welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. I'm going to switch cameras here and get over to our interview scene. A couple of housekeeping things before we actually get started here and meet our guest on the show. Uh, one thing is make sure that uh, you do send in your emails and your questions or comments to gibbsj1086 at gmail.com. And if you're interested in coming on the show to discuss soteriology, manuscript evidence, or any apologetic argument for or against Christianity, uh, be sure and send me an email as well. Or you can leave me a voice message uh, in whatever podcasting platform that you're listening to. Uh, or you can reach me on Facebook at Joshua Gibbs or on Twitter at The Real J Gibbs. So T H A Real J Gibbs at Twitter. And uh, if you're going to do that, it, it, one thing that I'm really trying to push is if you do have questions or you'd like to leave a comment uh, on the podcasting app, it doesn't matter what platform you're you're actually using. Just go into the description of whatever episode you you choose. Uh, it doesn't have to be this exact live episode, just any episode. Go to the description menu and you'll see a little uh, link in there to actually leave a voice message for uh, for myself. Those are going to be the priority um, for when we get to the end on questions. Uh, we'll play those live uh, over the broadcast. 
So if you just leave your name and your question or your comment, um, we'll go with those first and then obviously emails and social media questions after that. So let's go ahead and uh, start with some things uh, about um, our guest. So we're going to introduce Evan Minton. Evan, hey, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on, man. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's nice to be here. All right, so let's get started. Just a few things about yourself and a few of the beliefs um, that you've put on your website, your your blog, your podcast. Uh, you're a busy guy, it seems like, in, in the online area, as well as uh, putting out different information for uh, some of the books that you've written. But um, if, if you could just start about uh, start out with a few things about yourself, your beliefs, and then conclude with uh, your passion for apologetics with specifically uh, our, the discussion on the Kalam cosmological argument, if that's um, something that, you know, obviously it seems like you've got a lot of interest in apologetics area, and, and uh, that's what we'll be talking about tonight is is the Kalam itself, so. Yeah, so I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in the Bible Belt down here in uh, Piedmont, South Carolina, in the upstate area. Um, and even though I was raised in the church and my family took me to church, uh, my parents, and I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, I can't really say that I ever made a, an actual commitment to Jesus. It wasn't until I was 17 years old after going through some really hard stuff that I'm not going to get into, but uh, just several years of really, really hard stuff that I actually went from belief that to belief in. And belief that is I would I, I would ca character that as being what the, what the demons have. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James tells his readers, uh, and in, in the context of, uh, they, were, they were just, you know, they, they said Christianity was true, but they were living very licentious lives, and, and that's the context in which James was writing. And James says to his readers, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble. And we know what what's going to happen to the demons. Just turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire where he's going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. So just because you acknowledge the existence of God, and even if you acknowledge the death and resurrection of Jesus, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily believe that, that you're saved. Just uh, nodding your head in agreements with the creeds is is not enough. You have to place your faith in Christ. You have to have belief in. Uh, Lee Strobel, uh, the author of actually the first book on apologetics I ever read, The, the Case for Christ, he, he puts it in like a, math, a pseudo-mathematical formula. He says that salvation is belief plus receiving. And he, he bases this on John chapter 1 verse 12 where it says to all who uh, believed in him, everyone who, who received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Believing believing plus receiving equals becoming a child of God. Well, I had the first part of that formula. I believed that Christianity was true, that God existed, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but I never actually said, Lord, I'm yours, forgive me of my sins, and, and all that. But after Several years in my in my teenage years, uh, God 
got to me. He broke me down, and I've been faithfully following him ever since. And it, it was about a year after that. Um, God just radically changed my life. He changed my heart. He changed my outset. I dramatically experienced him, his presence, when I did come to him. And it was about a year after that that I started uh, sharing my faith because I believed wholeheartedly that people who did not believe in Christ were going to go to hell. And whether – and back then I had never heard of – I'm not going to go off on a rabbit trail, but annihilationism, but I certainly believed that they weren't going to make it into heaven. Whether that be eternal torment or annihilationism, it's not going to end up good. You can't read John 3.36. <laughs> uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever doesn't will not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. I didn't want the wrath of God to abide on people. I wanted everyone to be saved and everyone to have eternal life, so I preached the gospel to whoever uh, I, I came across. And one day I was on Twitter, and I ran into a very angry, hostile, condescending atheist, and I was trying to share the gospel to him. I said, Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead. Uh, God loves you. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, etc., etc., and he just pounded me with all sorts of objections. He asked me, how do you know that your God is even real? Why not Zeus and Thor and Aphrodite and and, and Krishna and all these other gods that you believe are myths. Why do you? Why should I? Why do you believe your god is the one that isn't mythological? And he he asked me about the problem of evil. If your god is so powerful and so loving, why how does he? Why does he let children starve to death in third world countries? And and how could God, how could a loving god torture people forever in hell? And, and it really, in retrospect, what he was doing was the shotgun tactic, just firing one objection after another after another. I couldn't respond to any of them. I, I sort of kind of responded to the problem of evil with the, the free will defense, but even that was very unsophisticated. Um, it was the 4th of July, 2010, uh, when this conversation took place, and it, it was uh, around noon, and I had to, I had to get off the... Um, uh, the conversation went on for a few hours, but around 4 o'clock p.m. I just had to get off because my family and I we were going to be attending uh, an Independence Day celebration uh, in my hometown, uh, eating hot dogs and watching fireworks and, and stuff like that. So I just, I just got off the internet, and I didn't think anything of it until the next day. The next day, my mind was just reeling with, with doubts as I was thinking about the – the questions and the objections that this Twitter atheist posed to me, and I, and I was thinking, well, why should I believe that my God is real as opposed to all these other ones? Uh, why God? Why does God allow evil and suffering? Um, why, you know? So I, I was like, the these questions, which I find some of the, the way they were formulated, really were kind of um, elementary. They just sent me into a spiral of doubt, and I felt my faith eroding. I was on my way to becoming an agnostic, and I panicked. And my mind went to a verse in Mark chapter 9, Mark 9, 6. 
in the context of this verse, uh, the dis- Jesus and the disciples were approaching some of Jesus' other dis- disciples. They had failed to cast a demon out of a man's son, and Jesus basically asked, hey, what's going on? And the man's father asked, "I, you're, my, my son's being tormented by a demon. Uh, it throws him into the fire and into the water to try to destroy him. I asked your disciples to cast the demon out, but they couldn't. Uh, can you help me? And Jesus said, yes, I can. Any, anything is possible to him who believes. And then we get to verse 6 in which the man replies, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. That man, he was doubting that Jesus had the ability to cast out the demon, but he had just enough faith to believe that if he asked if he asked Jesus to increase his faith, then he would do so. So I thought, okay, I can do the same thing. I can ask the Lord to help me with my unbelief. And I also reasoned uh, on the basis of the the fact that 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants no one to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants all people to be saved. Well, I'm a person, so if God doesn't want any person to be lost, and I'm a person, then it follows that God doesn't want me to be lost. And John 3.18 says, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to be lost. So reasoning through that, I thought, okay, well then if I ask God to help me believe so that I won't be lost, he'll help me. And he did that. Initially, he did that through what um, philosopher, which Christian philosophers call the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. But later, he did so even more through the use of apologetics. It was about it was around August of that year, and I was scrolling through my Facebook timeline. I hadn't been on Facebook very long. Uh, one of my friends posted a link to a YouTube video. That YouTube video was. The, someone had uploaded the entirety of Illustra Media's movie, The Case for a Creator, uh, starring Lee Strobel and uh, some other scientists and philosophers uh, talking about the scientific evidence for creation and design in the universe. I watched the whole thing, 60 minutes, and by the time my – I, by the time I got done, I was blown away. I had never heard any of this in church. Uh, the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the laws of physics, and all of the, the local fine-tuning, and the complexity of DNA, and, and my mind was reeling in a good way this time. I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that all of this information uh, was out there. And that led me to look, at, to look up. The, the guy in the in the video, Lee Strobel, and I discovered he had a book by the same name, and he had some other books, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, and so I bought the Case for Christ, and I read it, I read that, and uh, the rest is history. That's how I, I, I when I when I read the Case for Christ and found all this historical evidence and arguments for the reliability of the New Testament and the Jesus's resurrection from the dead. I'm like, I gotta tell people about this. And it, it was I, I I read apologetic stuff. I watched YouTube videos for about a year, and uh, finally in 2012, I decided to start putting everything I was learning into writing. 
Sweet, man. So let's, I, I want to get into that a little bit, but one thing that I noticed when I was on your website, there's a quote that you have in the About Me section, and, and you said, if you had asked me several years ago, if you didn't believe in God, would your life be any different? And at the time, you, I take it, it, you say, if I answered honestly, the answer would be no, no, it wouldn't be any different. So how has, it sounds like obviously apologetics and the Word of God has made a, a massive impact on your life in, in answering that question. But if you could real briefly just kind of answer that now, does, um, does belief in God today uh, make your life any different? How would you answer that today versus how you answered it back then? Oh, well, ab absolutely. I, um, for, for one thing, I, when I was a teenager, I looked at a lot of pornography. I don't do that anymore because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, if you even look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And also, uh, loving my enemies. I had a lot of hatred and anger towards people who had had done me wrong and and I saw the state of the world and how awful it was and I I had a I had a hatred towards humanity in general and I took I actually took pleasure at the thought that that some of these horrible human beings like Osama bin Laden or well, I, ISIS wasn't ex around back then. We had uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, that they would spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Just, I, I took pleasure at the thought that they would be that they would get their comeuppance for the the evils that they had done. And I don't do that any, anymore. Now I I pray for my enemies and I I forgive those who hurt me, and I keep my eyes and my ears clean and I don't I've even I've even given up uh, listening to secular music I have nothing against secular music in in general in principle some songs are okay but there's there's too much wheat mixed in with the chaff um, I I, list, I I remember at one point pulling up a five-finger death punch song on Spotify and within like the first three seconds, he had said the f word and taken the Lord's name in vain. And I was like, nope, nope, that that that's it for me. So now I, I just stick to, I, I just stick to Christian music like Skillet, Icon for Hire, Cutlass, Casting Crowns, Toby Mac. Um, I like Demon Hunter. Uh, I like um, Living Sacrifice. I'm really into heavy metal and and hard rock. So that. I, and I also read my Bible daily. Um, I back when I was back when I was uh, what I would call a nominal Christian, I really didn't read the Bible at all. What I knew about the Bible came from what little I paid attention to the sermons when my family took me to church and uh, biblical movies we would watch around religious holidays like uh, like Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments but now I, I am actually a student of scripture and I'm not just I'm not just having the Bible given to me from the pulpit and Hollywood okay so um, we had just mentioned a moment ago that you have uh, a podcast a blog and a website that is that's called cerebral faith why don't you just take a second and tell us where how did you come up with that name and uh, uh, just kind of the backstory there 
Yeah, well, I wanted to come up with a name that conveyed the reasonableness of Christianity, the intellectual vitality of the Christian worldview. But I was like, well, I can't go with reasonable faith because William Lane Craig has already got that. I was like, well, I can't really have smart faith because I, I thought it was Mary Jo Sharp, but uh, someone has a smart faith. Uh, and my friend Luke Nix, he's got a blog called Faithful Thinkers. So I was like, ah, what can I do? Uh, then I thought of the term cerebral, and the dictionary defines cerebral as being like an intellectual approach to something. Uh, he ha he has a very cerebral approach to X. It's very left-brained when you when you take a cerebral approach to something. And I take a cerebral approach to the Christian faith. So I thought, okay, okay that's what I'm going to go with. And then I designed the logo. I got um, public public domain uh, brain clip art, and I just threw it all together. And I originally started out on Blogspot, and, and I was on there for many, many years. But recently, I just switched over to WordPress, so now I'm now it's no longer cerebralfaith.blogspot.com. Now it's cerebralfaith.net, and I can do a lot more with the website than I could on that uh, on that previous hosting. Yeah, so let's take just a second. I'm going to share the screen with our audience. Uh, should switch over here. So you can see that if you're viewing live. And there it is. So that is, that's the website, Cerebral Faith. Uh, let's see if I can zoom out a little bit. Cerebralfaith.net. And it looks like, I'm going to scroll down here so you can see there's Patreon if you want to support his website. There's, it's basically there for apologetics, biblical studies, systematic theology, and intellectually fulfilled Christianity. So you got a blog, podcast. There's some different debates that you've done as well. Uh, that's one thing that um, we haven't got into yet, but obviously I recently did a debate on the Kalam cosmological argument itself, and uh, really that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but you've also written a few books. The, the first is called The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. Uh, give me just a second here. I'm going to flip this screen back over so we can get to the cameras. And... Uh, they should be able to see us there, but um, the second one is a hellacious doctrine. This seems to be a very uh, popular topic that's coming up again today. Um, at least uh, commonly, it's talked about the annihil annihilationism seems to be making a comeback as far as the theological circles go um, and the biblical doctrine of hell. Um, but you you lay out a classic defense for um, um, not annihilationism, but um, eternal conscious torment. The, the third book that you got is My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus, and then finally, Inference to the One True God, Why I Believe in Jesus Instead of Other Gods. So, um, I guess the real question is, in, in relation to um, the, the cosmological argument itself, do you think that apologetics um, is the best way to bring a skeptic to the gospel? What are, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think generally people who have intellectual doubts, uh, like I had when I was going to agnostic, agnosticism, or, or people who just they they want they see no reason to accept Christianity as true rather than any other worldview like Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, etc., etc., or maybe they even have some reasons to 
disbelieve in the existence of God, like the problem of evil or divine hiddenness, or maybe they uh, maybe they see the Bible as being unreliable. Maybe they see maybe they've read some scholarly works that uh, show that try to argue against the validity of what the biblical texts tell us. And so go, going into a defense, giving reasons to show that God exists, that Jesus existed and he died on the cross and rose from the dead, uh, whether that be through the reliability method, showing that the New Testament is historically reliable, and it gets so many things right on incidental things, therefore it's probably right when it gets right on the most central subject, the resurrection, or if you go through the minimal facts method like Gary Habermas does and like I do, either way you get to the – you get a historical evidential basis for belief in the resurrection rather than just quoting a Bible verse and saying um, trust the word of God. It's, I, I find that when I am talking to unbelievers, I ver I'm pretty much always having to respond to tough questions. I may not have to get into some heavy-duty philosophy. I may not have to pull out the – I may not have to pull out my copy of the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, but I, I, I do have to – to, to get into a little bit of, of why Christianity is true. To, today, not very many people are just going to respond when you quote John 3.16 and, and exhort them to repent. Yeah, so um, in, in regard to the apologetic method itself, it seems like the, the two most popular is going to be the evidentialist uh, apologetic, and then the other is going to be presuppositional. Now, do you think that do you think that we should keep the two um, isolated against each other as as two separate apologetic methods, or do you think it's possible to actually blend the two together and bring it back to um, obviously what what a Christian is is essentially arguing for um, from a biblical perspective? I think at the end of the day, whether you're arguing against an atheist or you're arguing against um, a Christian on uh, differences that we have in um, you know different kind of inner varsity debates. Um, do you think that that's something that we should be able to do is, is, is draw it back to what the Bible says, or do you, sh do you think we should just purely keep them either evidential or presuppositional? Well, I myself find that the evidential method is the most effective and the most convincing. It was certainly evidential arguments that saved me from doubting, and when I listen to people who... Uh, have actually come to Christ through apologetics, such as Lee Strobel, J. Warner Wallace, C.S. Lewis, um, Frank Morrison, uh, and the, you know those are just the names I think I can think of off off the top of my head. They came to the, the the apologetic method that brought them from skepticism to faith was the evidential approach. They didn't they didn't cite any presuppositional arguments that brought them over and i really can't think of any atheist that has become a theist through the presuppositional method now that isn't to say that there aren't any but pretty every time i come across a new christian who says i used to be an atheist or i used to be whatever and i came to christ through apologetics and and this is this is the evidence this is the arguments that convinced me it's always either 
the reliability of the New Testament or it's the minimal facts for the resurrection or it's looking at uh, design arguments for God like the fine-tuning or irreducible complexity or the cosmo cosmological argument, it, hardly ever is it what I would – what I hear from the presuppositional crowd. So I think that that isn't to say that you know there may be somebody out there listening who's like, ah, I came to Christ through presuppositional apologetics. Well, uh, good for you, but in my just from my this is purely anecdotal, but just from what I have surveyed, it seems to me that ev the, that evidential apologetics is more effective. I hear you. So in, in that in that regard, let's get to the evidential argument or the cosmological argument itself, which is, uh, you know, what people are tuning in right now, that's what you've been sticking around for about uh, 28 minutes right now going, hey, guys, we're talking about the clomlet. So this is going to be our chance to get into that. We've had, uh, we've had, so now our audience is more familiar with you, your work, your website, and uh, kind of what your view is on evidentialism versus presuppositionalism, why that's important to you, and how that how that has uh, made an impact on your own life um, in regard to your relationship with the Lord and uh, kind of your passion to win other people to Christ through that method. But um, I, let's talk a little bit about the argument itself. What do you think, I, I guess the first question is, do you think that... Um, the Kalam is actually a good argument for the existence of God. Uh, the reason I ask that is because um, I, I'm in a few different um, atheist Facebook groups, and I, I talk to atheists pretty regularly. And usually that's the very first thing that is said about the Kalam itself, is if you're going to argue from that perspective, you've lost already because it's just a bad argument. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you think it's a good argument for the existence of God? Yes, and actually, I, I think it, I think it's one of the best. I think it's like one of the top tier arguments. In fact, I have a blog post on my website called "My My Top Five Favorite Arguments for God's Existence," and that's like number one on the list. You know, there's a there's a lot. There's like, I mean, uh, Jerry Walls uh, wrote a book called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God's Existence." So there's a lot of them out there, but I have like a top five list, and the Kalam is like. It, it makes the list. So look, I've got to ask you this. This is a little less, a little less serious. Um, but what would you say is the be the worst argument that you've actually heard against the Kalam itself? Um, probably the argument that nothing ever really begins to exist. That they say all we've all we see is just a rearrangement of. Of pre-existing matter, and so the first premise of the argument, whatever begins to exist has a cause, cannot be substantiated. That, that's a bad argument because it it conflates two different kinds of causality, which, you know, uh, in Aristotelian categories, we have efficient causation and material causation, the latter just simply being what, what a thing is made of, and the former being what caused something to come into being so like with a a book you have the material cause the ink and the paper and maybe even like microsoft word or google docs but then you have the efficient cause which is the author and so the first premise is not everything that begins to exist has a material cause it's everything that begins to exist has an efficient cause it's just not it, it's just so you know and yeah we we do have inductively 
everything we see coming into being has both an efficient and a material cause. But, you know, whether it, it certainly is the case that if something begins to exist, it has an efficient cause. Whether it has a material cause or not, it just has to be determined on the basis of the evidence. And I think we've got good evidence to believe the universe began with an efficient cause, but no material cause, ex nihilo. So, I, I, would, I would like to chase that a little bit more, um, but rather than, rather than chase that, I think that that's probably, um, that, that leads into um, a lot of other questions that would need to be answered, um, and in particular when we get to that point and, and talking about some of the questions that came up in my own debate on uh, Tuesday, um, with this with this argument, there's there's definitely some things that I'd like to uh, get your take on. But what would you say is the best objection that you've actually heard against the Klum? I would have to say it would be the mother universe hypothesis that the the Big Bang was not the absolute beginning of the universe, but it was just a relative beginning. It was that the the cause of the universe was really just this massive mother universe that is eternally spawning baby universes now I, I do say that's the best objection but it's it's not i don't think that isn't to say that i think it's a successful objection i think really it only it, it only kicks the problem upstairs yeah so to elaborate on that a little bit further in, in regard to an infinite universe that has uh, the theory of the mother universe and baby universes Essentially, to, to break that idea down, it's, it's really an analogy for um, what you see in, in natural law. You've got, you know, dip humans creating other humans as a picture of universes creating other universes. So, essentially, the argument is, is, is really is kind of circular in saying, well, it's not nothing coming from nothing. It's actually something coming from something, so it, it, that something has just e existed eternally, and that something is an infinite uh, universe of universes, but I, I I think that where that that argument tends to break down is is uh, what an actual infinite versus uh, an infinite in principle would be with with Hilbert's hotel and that that example that would be used there is you you can have an infinite universe, uh, but if you have an infinite universe, it's it's impossible to have this moment in time right now that we're actually um, having a conversation that you can place in what we would call the now or the present versus the past or the future. Um, because in, if, if you do have an infinite universe that's producing infinite universes, there's no beginning point. There, there can't be any sequential um, uh, addition or sequential subtraction from the point zero. It's just infinite. It's always been there. It's, it's a circle or rather a figure eight um, kind of uh, symbol for what it, what it would actually look like in a model. But to me, it I, that argument is is it's kind of difficult to comprehend because it, if you think about it, really what we're saying is you've got a natural infinite that's producing other natural infinite things. You know, one universe producing another universe to give us the universe that we've got here, um, versus a metaphysical, all-powerful, um, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being. Um, that would have created everything that we see today. So you've essentially got a naturalist view versus a supernatural view. How would you how would you argue to to someone that essentially um, the view of 
of, of an infinite universe versus an infinite God that created the universe um, are essentially the same arguments that are unprovable. What would your response be to that? Well, the the really the really big problem with the mother universe is that, I, and I point this out in my book, the case for the one true God is the very first. Ob- well, actually, no, yeah, it was the very first objection I address uh, to premise two. It's that if you concede that there is this mother universe that has been spawning little babies, little bubble universes from eternity past, if the mother universe is static. And it is it, the mother universe itself is not expanding, and this mother universe has just endured through infinite past time, constantly spawning little babies. Eventually, all of those expanding baby universes would have gotten so plenteous and would have become so numerous that they would all coalesce, cobble together, and form what appears to be an infinitely old, infinitely large universe, which contradicts our observations that we live in a universe of finite size and age. But if if the atheist wants to say, well, no, the the mother universe is expanding, and and so and it's been doing that, so there's always more room within the mother for more for the baby for not only more babies to come into being, but for those babies to expand. Well. Then what is the borguth vilenkin theorem applies to it. The borguth vilenkin theorem says that any universe which has on average been in a state of constant expansion has to have a beginning. The, the borguth vilenkin theorem applies to the mother universe, and since the mother universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets older and older and older, then if you just rewind the clock, rewind time, you'll find the mother universe gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's uh, – the size of a period at the end of a sentence, and if you rewind the clock even farther back, it shrinks down to nothingness. So the same reason, the same evidence that led scientists to conclude that this universe had a Big Bang beginning leads to the conclusion that the mother universe, if there is such a thing, that it must have had a Big Bang beginning. Now, what if the atheist wants to say, well, maybe there's a grandmother universe that's spawning babies, and the mother universe is just one of those babies where you run into the same problem. If it's static and it's been producing babies from eternity past, they would have all gotten so big, they would have cobbled together and formed what looks to be an infinitely old, infinitely large universe. But if the grandmother universe is expanding, boom, the borguth vilenkin theorem applies to it, and it must have had a beginning. And so well, the atheist could say, well, maybe there's a great-grandmother universe. Well, you just have the same problems. Eventually, you are going to have to get to an uncaused cause. So why wouldn't the Borduth-Vilenkin theory apply to the uncaused cause itself? Because um, on the the Kalam, the the cause of the universe, or the mother universe, or the grandmother universe, or however far back you want to push this cause... It has. It is a a personal being, and there's several. There's a couple of steps that get us to that conclusion. What well, a conceptual analysis. Once you once you conclude, one whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the universe has a cause. You then do a conceptual analysis of what it means to be a cause of the universe. Well, the the cause is the cause of all space. 
that means it must be spaceless, non-spatial. It is not in space because if it were in space, then it would be a part of the universe or the mother universe or the grandmother universe or what have you. It is spaceless. It must be timeless because time had a beginning. We know this not only from the astrophysical evidence but also from the philosophical arguments that you can't have an infinite amount of past moments. Otherwise, the present moment would never have arrived. So time had a beginning. Uh, the cause must be immaterial for the, because we've just concluded that it's spaceless. It's non-spatial. Any material things are composed of molecules, atoms, protons, and electrons. They and these, this this takes up space. They take up spatial dimensions. And so, if the cause were a material cause, it would be spatial, as as an entailment. But it's not. It's spaceless because it caused all spatial dimensions to come into being. So, therefore, it's. It's immaterial. If it were uh, material things have mass and they take up space, the cause of the universe is spaceless. It doesn't take up space, so it's immaterial. And it must be enormously powerful because it was able to create physical reality out of nothing. Now there are a few reasons why it must be a personal, a personal being rather than just some mechanistic cause. But the one that is that takes the least amount of time to explain is that its personhood is an entailment of its immateriality. William Lane Craig does a good job of pointing this out in his books, Reasonable Faith and On Guard. He says that philosophers realize there are two things, two categories of things that can be immaterial, either abstract objects like numbers or, an un or unembodied minds. But Abstract objects are causally impotent. That's part of what it means to be abstract. The number seven, for example, can't cause anything. So since an abstract object cannot be a, a candidate for the cause of the universe or the multiverse, it must be a it must be an unembodied mind, something like a spirit or a soul. Now, whereas now, why this cause doesn't fall under the same objection that the mother universe, grandmother universe, great-grandmother universe uh, does is that it's not a an impersonal thing that is just mechanistically producing universes and is expanding forever. It, it is a timeless entity, and it has freedom of the will because it's a person, and therefore it can either – it can choose never to create a universe – or it can, and that explains why we actually. That's actually that's one of the arguments. Another that's another argument for its personhood because if it, the argument is that if it weren't a person, then either the universe should be in, eternally old or it should never begun to exist at all. William Lane Craig uses the illustration of uh, a lake that has been around from eternity past. And the temperature has been below zero from eternity past. He would say it would be impossible for the water to just begin to freeze a finite time ago. No, if if the lake were eternally present and the temperature were eternally below 30 degrees, then the water would always be frozen. It, it would never begin to freeze. Likewise, if the cause of the universe were uh, an impersonal mechanistic thing, just – 
sitting there ready to create the universe. They had all of its necessary conditions to make the universe uh, pop into being. Then why didn't it begin an infinite amount of time ago? But um, so, you know, with a mechanistic or a, a non personal agent, you either have an eternally old universe or no universe at all. But by contrast, Craig says, uh, with a personal cause, you can have you can have an eternally existing cause, but an effect that is only of finite age. So he says, to a man that is sitting from eternity could freely will to stand up, and hence you would have a temporal cause arise from an eternally existing. Uh, I mean, a, 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 a temporal effect arising from an eternal cause. So I think at the end of the day, what we're arguing is that we've, we're looking at the world, trying to look at the world through a, a skeptic's eyes, which would, which would have to provide a naturalistic explanation for everything that we see today and understand the way that we do understand it today based off of the knowledge that we do have about the universe that we see. So to sum it all up, I think that I, it, just to kind of oversimplify the entire argument, in my own mind, I, I, I think that it, it has to come down to uh, whether or not the laws of nature began to exist themselves. Because what I mean is, you've got the laws of ther thermo thermodynamics, which would say that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, uh, nor can... Uh, um, uh, and within the laws of entropy that we are losing energy, that that doesn't actually mean that there's a loss of of... of of energy or matter because matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Um, but in, in relation to those those two arguments, essentially the the naturalist or the skeptic is going to tell us um, that you've got an eternal universe that's operating within these laws. That uh, so therefore these laws are just as eternal as the universe. So to me, it w it would it seems like we've got to we've got to narrow down um, when these laws actually came into effect. And, you know, based off the evidence that we do have, I, I don't think that we have any evidence of other universes. So the, the, the greatest speculation that we do have as an alternative to other universes is what we would call a cosmic vacuum um, in space. So what would you say to uh, that specific argument that, yeah, nothing comes from nothing. Every, everyone knows that. Um, but if you're operating within the laws of, of nature... And, and something has to come from something, well, what do you do with the, the cosmic vacuum that seems to, seems to show that, that, nothing, that something does come out of nothing? So what would your response be in, 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 in that regard? Yeah, um, the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig has done uh, a lot of writing on this because it, it has been popularized by the atheist physicist Lawrence Krauss. In fact, he wrote a whole book on it called A Universe from Nothing. And Craig points out that what Krauss and others who use his his argument, what they do is they commit they essentially commit the fallacy of equivocation using the word nothing in two different senses. When when quantum physicists use the term nothing, they don't mean what we mean by nothing comes from nothing. 
and what we mean by nothing, Aristotle had a very humorous definition of what uh, of what nothing is. He said it, it's what rocks dream about. Nothing is a term of universal negation. It is literally no thing. It is the complete absence of all being. In fact, there really is no such thing as nothing, because if nothing were something, it wouldn't be nothing, but it would be something. And so, basically, um, Krauss is just abusing language. He, he's... He, um, what what the what the quantum vacuum is? It's not nothing. It isn't. It is a sea of roaring, violent energy, and it is governed by physical laws and it has a physical structure. And I can't remember who it was. Uh, it wasn't that that, re that also responded to Krauss independently of Craig, but he said that uh, that um, particles coming into being from the quantum vacuum and then going out of being is no more unusual or surprising than saying that my fist comes into being uh, when I close my fingers and then it, my fist goes out of being when I open my fingers uh, and uh, this I, I think he, I think he was I think he was also a quantum physicist it was someone who Craig cited when he was talking about how Krauss is wrong uh, and this physicist said that the particles in the quantum vacuum just rearrange themselves in such a way that Sometimes they come into being and then they go out of being, sort of like what I'm doing with my fist right now. There's a fist. Now there's no fist. Now there is a fist. Now there's no fist. So it's just it's not a good it's it's not a good response to the Kalam. It really misrepresents the science of quantum physics. And really I don't think it solves the problem because I the quantum vacuum is a part of the universe. If so if the universe came into being and the quantum vacuum would just as much need a cause as the universe does. So I think that ultimately uh, the argument to, to make it an argument of um, a violation of the definition of nothing, um, which would actually which would actually be the fallacy of equivocation. I, I, I think that we've got to establish that it, it is it is a fallacy of equivocation by definition because we're saying that um, this sea of fluctuation within a, a quantum vacuum is is nothing when in fact it is something. So that would be equivocation to say, well, um, you know, the the uh, the quantum vacuum is nothing when in reality a quantum vacuum itself is something. It's it's a sea of fluctuating particles that either come into existence and go out of existence or they don't. Um, but I I think that from a philosophical perspective that's absolutely true, um, and in 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 just the, the words themselves. It's, there's no doubt that it is equivocation in that sense, but from the scientific sense, is it actually is it actually something coming into existence from uh, no matter and, I mean, es essentially a literal definition of nothing? Uh, no, it isn't. It, it's, it's these these particles which are said to arise from the quantum vacuum actually arise from uh, a sea of energy. It's like... Uh, I, the the way I envision it in my mind when I when I read this stuff, it's very hard to. You, no one has actually seen this stuff. We, qu uh, quantum physicists just just know what goes on there through mathematical formulations and stuff. I mean, you, there is no microscope powerful enough to actually probe the quantum realm. We don't have Ant Man suits that allow us to do that. 
Uh, but the way I envision it in my mind is kind of like an electrical current, and like if something touches, if a fork touches that electrical current, you'll have sparks fly off. And that's kind of like how I see the the particles in the quantum vacuum. They just kind of fly out out of the energy, but they can be reabsorbed back into that sea of energy. Okay, so I'm going to move on to another question. For those of you who enjoy this argument uh, and you're still following along, I know we're probably going to lose some people um, because it, it, it may get a little uh, monotonous in, in answering objections, but... Uh, if you're really interested in the in, in the argument itself, I personally do think that it's a great tool to use as uh, in, as evidence that there there has to be a first cause. And, and uh, from our perspective, we've we've got to um, come to reason on what is the best explanation for what that first cause would be. Um, is it something that's physical and natural, or is it something uh, that exceeds and super super? I guess if you want to say supersedes the natural, uh, to make it supernatural, is it an actual supernatural event? And I, I think that at the end of the day, these are some of the questions that we're going to reason out as objections, that it's it's a poor argument to see whether or not it is, is in fact a poor argument or not. Um, so the, the third question that I've got is actually going to be in regarding uh, premise one itself. Premise one obviously um, is, is suggesting that everything um, that begins to exist had a cause. So um, the, 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 the number three, the third objection is going to be the, to that premise. And typically you don't see you don't see a lot of objections to the first premise um, because it just seems kind of intuitive. Like, yeah, every, everything that we see has got a cause. I see this tree outside my window right here. Well, that obviously had a, uh, had a cause. It had a seed which came from another tree which came from another tree, which and, and so on. And, and you never see one tree producing a different kind of tree. You, you never see an elm tree producing, you know, an apple tree or something like that. So it's always consistent. It's always fine-tuned. It's always, um, there, there's always a lot of information that's being transferred uh, from something relatively um, small into something that's relatively great. And in reference to the universe, we see this, this same kind of illustration with something that began extremely small with a, a low information alone a, a significant amount of concentrated information in a very small point of singularity which we would call time space um, energy matter all these things that began to exist so what we're trying to identify is what is the cause to all of these things that we see today uh, just like we can look in the natural world and see well that tree you know came from another tree and so on so this this universe we would either have to prove there was another universe that does produce seed that is allowed is able to bring other universes into existence, such as our own, um, and, and and that just it becomes very complicated. So let me just let me just ask the question here. It says the first premise doesn't actually apply to the universe since time began at the Big Bang. So with time beginning at uh, with time which began at the at the t time began at the universe. So a theory of time only applies to the universe. The first premise is everything that begins to exist has a cause. It's either a material cause or a sufficient cause. Something cannot come from nothing because out of nothing, nothing comes. So um, if you deny that, you've got a, a heavy burden of proof. But I would ask you, um, Evan, what, what, how would you kind of respond to that? What, the first premise, it, time, the first premise doesn't apply to the universe because um, time actually began at the Big Bang. What would you say in response to that? Well, that's actually a – I think that's actually making the uh, – I think that's special pleading to say that everything begins to exist except the 
universe? Why is the universe exempt? Well, you know, the, the, the justification, the attempt at justification there is to, that time began to exist, and, you know, you can't have cause and effect without time, but time began. So what caused time? There, there, ha there has to be a, a, you know, the Big Bang happened. And so why did it happen? If, if it, it seems to me that there has to be, uh, yeah, I mean, if the, the cause is timeless because the cause transcends time, not in a, not in a temporal sense, but in a, a log it's logical priority, not temporal priority. Obviously, you can't have anything before the first moment of time, but you can have something logically precede time, and that's also pretty heady stuff there. What uh, logical temporal priority is? You have at at one fifty nine p.m. you have x, and then at at two o'clock p.m. you have y. That's temporal priority. But logical priority would say. X is the reason for Y. X is the cause of Y's existence. X is the reason why why Y is the way Y is. And so we definitely need to have something be the explanation for the realm of space-time, matter, and energy, which banged into existence 14 billion years ago or – prior or the mother universe or the grandmother universe or where however far back you, you want to you're willing to push the cause so this is um this is one of my favorite questions because uh william lane, lane craig answers it and in kind of a um a <laughs> kind of a funny way and he he basically says like science operates based off of this law that that nothing comes that something comes from something, that nothing comes from nothing. Um, so essentially what you've got, if, if, if you reject this, this first principle, if you reject the first premise, then you could have anything coming into existence anywhere at any time. Um, so essentially what you've got is a prejudice of whatever this, this cause is, um, saying, well, I, I only produce time, space, matter, and energy and, and from nothing, at, at certain points in time, and I, I don't do it in, in preceding points in time. So basically what that's saying is, what's to keep you from having a horse just appear out of nowhere in the middle of your living room? Uh, that's, that's what this premise is, is actually arguing for, is, is that that does not happen. And we know that from science because we don't observe that happening. Um, so the argument to say, well, the universe came from nothing, uh, and, and we know that it did have a beginning, um, a point of singularity where, where there was no time, space, matter, or, or energy, but it had to have come from time, space, matter, and energy, then you, you're creating a problem for yourself that you cannot observe in the real world. So um, from my perspective, it's, it's, it, it just seems like um, the, the naturalist skeptical position and perspective of nothing, of something coming from nothing being the universe and, and, and that we don't actually observe that in real time and space uh, today requires a, a massive leap of faith, um, even more so to say, well, you know, the odds of something coming from nothing um, within uh, the laws of nature, um, it, it's just so astronomically impossible that it's more possible and plausible to believe that there is what you're talking about, Evan, um, this supernatural personal 
mind that is intelligent, that's all-powerful, that is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, all those things that would be required to create um, a beginning of the very things that we're, we're talking about, time, space, matter, you know, all of those things. So that's one of my favorite examples there. I want to go to um, one more argument. We'll end on this. There's so many more that we can, that we can talk about. Um, r- related to this this particular argument that are important and, and need to be addressed and, and discussed. Uh, but this is going to be the one that ultimately, it seems like everybody um, who's either an atheist or a skeptic is, whether it's the Kalam cosmological argument or the moral argument, uh, whatever it is, the transcendental argument, it, it doesn't matter. It seems like this is going to be the rebuttal that you've got, that you're going to have to come up with an answer to at some point. What you're arguing for from the Christian perspective is based off of things that you don't have evidence for, that you don't have an, an answer for. So me as a Christian, me saying, well, yeah, we've got to have something that transcends time, space, matter, and energy to create time, space, matter, and energy, or it's just naturally impossible to do that. Well, the skeptic would say, just because you don't have the answer for it uh, doesn't mean that you get to bring God into it. So this would be the classic argument of the God of the gaps argument. You Christians just when you don't have an answer, it's it's got to be God. When you do have an answer, it's either not God or it was still God. So what, what's your response to the God of the gaps argument within the cosmological argument itself? Yeah, this, this objection... Now, I want to make clear, there are God of the gaps arguments out there. I, I read some of the... Um, intelligent design literature and some of these like you know they they say well evolutionists can't account for uh, someone said recently it was leaf bugs like they can't explain account for how this biological feature came so we win evolutionists atheists you lose you know that so there are there are cases in which that charge holds but this is this is a very abused fallacy it's like I, I've often joked that if the conclusion is God, it's got to be a God of the gaps fallacy. No ifs, ands, or buts. If God is at the end, then it's got to be. It's like they don't even pay attention to the argument. They're just get, waiting for you to get done so they can accuse you of committing God of the gaps fallacy. This argument is not based on what we don't know. From from beginning to end, it's based on what we do know. We do know that whatever begins to exist has a cause. We we have very good philosophical reasons, inductive evidence, scientific evidence to affirm that. We do have very good philosophical arguments and scientific evidence that the universe began to exist approximately 14 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event that the astronomer Fred Hoyle dubbed the Big Bang. And we do know that you've got to have a beginning at some point, even if you want to posit uh, <laughs> alien simulations or grandmother universes or whatever. You can't you can't escape it. You have an absolute beginning. In fact, this is what um, – this is what uh, Alexander Vilenkin said. He said it takes – in his book, he said it, it takes an argument to convince reasonable men and a proof to convince an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There's no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. So we do know that the two premises are true. The really, I think the, the the objection here is the cause that the cause is God. Well, th- this isn't asserted just simply because we don't understand what could have caused the universe to come into being. We have very good, specific, positive reasons for why the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, uncaused, and personal. And I uh, I, I gave some of those uh, in this podcast. 
must be spaceless because there was no space until the cause produced it. Whatever the cause is, whatever it is, it's, it's got to be a non-spatial entity, something that transcends all of space. It's got to be timeless because time didn't begin to exist until the Big Bang. So it, it's a cause that transcends time. It's got to be immaterial because material things have mass. They're made of molecules and atoms. They occupy space. And we just we just said the cause is spaceless. So it's got to be an immaterial cause. It's got to be powerful because anything able to create the universe out of nothing has got to be extremely powerful, if not omnipotent. And it's got to be personal, one reason being because of the two things that could possibly be an immaterial cause, abstract objects or unembodied minds, abstract objects are causally impotent. You're not going to see the number three or musical notes or mathematical sets be causing things anytime soon. So it's got to be an, an unembodied mind, something like a spirit or a soul. And there are some other reasons for why the cause has to be uh, a person. In fact, it, Richard Swinburne gave a, a, one, a reason in, in his writings. I can't remember what it was. I think it was called The Existence of God. I can't remember if it was an article or if it was a book, but I cite him in my book, The Case for the One True God. So anyone wanting to get the reference can just go to that chapter and look at the footnote. But he, the argument he gave was that na nature did not begin to exist until – the Big Bang. I mean, the cause, the origin of the universe was the cause of nature. And there are two types of explanations. There are natural, there are scientific explanations, and there are personal explanations. Scientific explanations, says Swinburne, would be like if you walked into the kitchen and saw your friend uh, boiling a pot of water on the stove. You ask him, why is the pot boiling? The answer he could give you is, well, when the heat is transferred to the copper bottom of the pot, it causes the water molecules to vibrate more and more violently until they're thrown off in the form of steam. That would be a scientific explanation. It sounds like the kind of explanation Sheldon Cooper would give his roommate Leonard on the Big Bang Theory TV show. But the other explanation could be would be a personal explanation he could your your roommate could say i put the water on because i wanted to make tea and and swinburne argues because nature began to exist there cannot be any naturalistic or scientific explanations which only leaves one category left a personal explanation that is to say someone wanted the universe to exist these are all positive arguments, positive, well-thought-through reasons. We don't just say, oh, we don't know what caused the universe, so we just stick just stick God in there. I mean anyone who says that just really hasn't been following the, the presentation of the argument very carefully. So that's a, I, I think that's a good response, a good place to close on this particular topic. Uh, maybe we can follow up again uh, at another time and, and uh, talk about some other arguments for the existence of God. Uh, one thing that I, I put in into the, the chat box, if there's anyone that's viewing live and you do have a question or a comment for Evan or myself, now would be the time to go ahead and type that in there. And uh, we'll follow up with that while you're thanking your questions, if you have any. Um, I want to switch gears here just for a moment, and then we can wrap it up, and we'll be done with this this episode for tonight. Um, well, rather, this afternoon. Um, on Sunday, which, by the way, the Chiefs are kicking off here, so we're going to have to wrap this thing up pretty quick. But anyway, so Evan, uh, one thing that you did put in your About Me 
section on your website, which, by the way, if, if anyone wants to go and check out your, your work, your podcast, your blog, your debates, your books, they can go to cerebralfaith.net. And, uh, but one thing that you put in there is, is that you're a Molinist, and, and it seems like in, in the last, I don't know, uh, probably 10 years, Molinism is really becoming a little bit more prominent uh, whether it's even whether it's in Calvinist circles, whether it's in Arminian circles, it, it seems like this is kind of a view that that anyone uh, can adopt, uh, and and essentially it's asking the question: uh, Where is God at in His active versus His passive um, actions um, in time in bringing someone into existence to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and to be saved? Um, it, it, it would seem to me that that the that the argument for Molinism actually is is saying that God God knows who's who's going to be saved and He brings them into existence in a time and a place geographically um, that He He knows when they will hear that gospel and believe it based off of His foreknowledge. Um, but if you could just kind of sum up what Molinism is and and what led you to adopt that view, if you would. Yeah. Well, anyone can. Uh, this is going to be very brief because, uh, you know, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Uh, but anyone who wants to go into a really in-depth look at my defense of Molinism and my explanation for uh, Molinism, I got two papers on my website, cerebralfaith.net. You can either read them on the website or you can download them as PDFs uh, through a Dropbox link. It's called The Case for Mere Molinism. That's one of them, and the soteriological case for Molinism. That's that's the second one. Uh, they're they're both about twenty pages long. They're they're really I wrote them I wrote them in the style of academic papers. But just briefly, what Molinism is is uh, it's not ba- it's not really a soteriological view, but it can be. You can incorporate it into your understanding of how God predestines people, how he the perseverance of the saints or lack thereof how that all works out but it's ba- at it, at its basis it's it's bare minimum it is a view of how god can be totally sovereign over all things and yet human beings be completely and totally free we have libertarian free will and it's how we reconcile these two and this is what uh, this is what uh, philosophers and theologians have been uh, puzzling over for centuries and luis molina came up with a very very powerful solution in the the 16th century uh, molinism says that god has god's omniscience can be broken up into three logical moments and remember i mentioned logical priority x is the explanation for y there's uh, sorry, my mic. There's natural knowledge, middle knowledge, and free knowledge. God's natural knowledge is his knowledge of all logical possibilities, everything that could happen, everything that you could choose, everything that you could do. Uh, it's his knowledge of all necessary truths, like mathematical truths, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and so on. God's middle knowledge is his knowledge of Everything that would happen if, like, if Evan Minton won the lottery, he would buy all of the books on his Goodreads to read list, <laughs> or he would he would freely do that. Or if uh, if John ate at 
Tatsuki's Japanese restaurant this uh, this evening, he w- uh, he would freely choose to order the sushi, and he would get f- food poisoning. So it's God knows counterfactual statements. He knows what everyone would freely choose under any given circumstance, and he knows what would happen if something else were the case. And so on a, the Molinist says that on the basis of these two logical moments, every God's knowledge of everything that could happen and everything that would happen, God does he acts on this knowledge to create a what what is known as a possible world or a feasible world. God he he decrees that a certain set of these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom would come into being. And therefore what would happen be- becomes what will happen. So essentially, God foreordains, he predestines everything that comes to pass, yet without violating our free will. Because God predestined, let's say God decides to actualize a circumstance in which Bob is in Tatsuki's restaurant, and therefore he eats the sushi and he gets food poisoning. God predestined that, but he he acted on the basis of a counterfactual if bob went to tatsuki's re- japanese restaurant he would freely choose to eat the sushi and that counterfactual is not something that god made true god just acted on his knowledge of the fact and so what will happen is what molina called free knowledge it's william lane craig says it's synonymous with foreknowledge and so in this way god can can get things to happen in the world without having to causally determine everything. So he knew if Caiaphas were the high priest in the first century, if Pontius Pilate were the governor of Judea in the first century, if Judas Iscariot were born in the time and place he did, and so on and so forth, then Judas would freely choose to betray Jesus to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would find Jesus guilty on grounds of blasphemy. Pontius Pilate would freely choose to give Barabbas over to the crowd instead of Jesus, and so on and so forth. And so, as a Molinist, I can agree with the Calvinist when they cite Acts chapter 2 and saying that the crucifixion of Jesus was according to the deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. But, like the Arminian, I say, all these actors in the passion narratives, they were completely free. I see. So, essentially, what you're trying to do, what Molina was trying to do anyways, was was to provide a solution to the problem of divine determinism and absolute free will independent from divine determinism. And I, I think it's, it, it's sort of a middle ground that it blends the two together. Uh, in some way, there's some there's some things I'm still working out that I may have a, an issue with, uh, with that. But um, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's it's more plausible, um, it's more plausible than than purely divine determinism, uh, and and it's more plausible than than uh, what essentially leads to um, a semi-Pelagian or Pelagian view altogether. So um, yeah, I, I I find it to be I find it. You know, it's not without its problems. You know, there's the grounding objection, but it. I, at the end of the day, when I look at all of the competing views, divine determinism, hard Calvinism, uh, simple foreknowledge Arminianism, open theism, Molinism, it, 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 sol- it answers, it solves the most problems, and it has the least objections to it. And I, I just, I'm going to be a Molinist until I find something better. 
So we've got one interesting response that um, that came on the, on the chat line here, and I want to see what you say. It says, I disagree with him. God actually has no dominion over the earth. Satan does. What, what would your response be to someone who would say that Christ doesn't actually have dominion over the earth, but it is, it's the dominion of the devil only? Well, I would I would just say that the Bible clearly teaches that that God is sovereign over all things. That Christ, yes, yeah, Satan is he's 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 um yeah he he he's got control over you know over the minds and hearts of many people. But ultimately, you know, as one of my Calvinist friends put it, Satan is on a leash. Read the Book of Job. Satan actually had to get God's permission to do what he did to Job. Satan could, you know, Satan could have just been like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do all these terrible things to Job and then he's going to curse God now and, and I'll be right and I'll shove it in God's face. But no, God had to say, "Let me torment Job. Let me show you that he is going to turn on you." And God's like, "Okay, fine." So uh, God Satan actually had to get God's permission to do that. That indicates that Satan is not completely totally running the show it may appear that way and satan may certainly think so but ultimately ultimately god is is sovereign and, and we even see that in the crucifixion and resurrection narrative and especially when you i don't want to go off on another rabbit trail i don't want to but you know when you look at the divine council theology and the the reclamation of the nations and stuff like that you should really get michael heiser's book the unseen realm but uh, yeah, the, the Gospel of Luke says that Satan entered into Judas, which implied that Satan had a hand in getting Jesus crucified. And we can imagine that Satan thought that he had defeated the Son of God when he was hanging on that tree and he drew his last breath. But then Easter Sunday came. Jesus got out of his grave, and he left. And, and I can imagine that—I can imagine that Satan was freaking out. I, he was like, I thought we had this guy. We get, we 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 killed him. We defeated him. What is going on here? And it actually worked to their detriment because the crucifixion was to atone for the sins of mankind, as as uh, as Romans as First Corinthians fifteen three says, as as First Peter three eighteen says, Christ died to reconcile us to God, to bring the unrighteous to the righteous. So it may seem like Satan's running the show, but he isn't. I think that's a good way to wrap it up and a good way to sum up an answer to that specific question is, is, uh, is you know, essentially really the question is what's, what's the role of, of the devil and, and uh, God in opposition um, of each other? Are they completely independent? And, and how does that actually operate in the real world? So um, I, I think essentially what we're doing in, in this episode, we, we've, we've kind of come full circle because we started out and talking about what, what Evan's passion was in, in apologetics, what got him into it, and uh, it was his own experience with, with, with learning um, some, some of the evidence for um, why you can reasonably um, conclude that there is a God and that he does exist, and, and that leads to the personal aspect of it is, does he care about you? Does, uh, I mean, what's, what's, what's the problem of evil in the world? What's, what's, what's the solution to the problem of evil in the world, and what has God done about it? And that was that was finally just summed up pretty well right there with with Evans' um, answer that that God does love you, He cares about you. He came down to this earth and and suffered and He lived, He suffered, He died, and He rose again on the third day. That is absolutely a supernatural event uh, that requires a personal 
God that is all-powerful in order to even accomplish the things that he says that he accomplished. So either he did or he didn't. And at the end of the day, I think that we can we can come to the conclusion that it's reasonable, one, to believe that God exists, but it's reasonable, two, um, to believe that there is a supernatural realm that, that is, it, it's, it's just absolutely relevant um, and exists in this real physical world that, that just has to have an answer for what, what we're looking for um, when it comes to the sin problem in, in, in eternity. Um, so if, if you are tuning in and you're, you're asking some of these questions to yourself, like, does God exist? Um, go back and listen to this. Go to, go to Evan's podcast, Cerebral Faith, and uh, check out some of the things that he does. He does a really good job at presenting some of these arguments um, of, of an, uh, from an evidentialist perspective. And uh, just consider and, and really rationalize and reason um, whether or not it's something that you, you, can, you can really come to believe that, hey, this thing might be true. And um, if you do that, if you, if you really do that, um, I believe that at the end of the day you're going to come to the conclusion that there is a God and uh, that he exists and that he loves you and, and, and he wants to have a relationship with you. Um, so just to kind of present the gospel, um, what, it, what it would take to be saved is, is as simple as this. You've got to understand that there is a sin problem, that you personally do have a sin problem, and that if there is a God who is eternal and he is perfect, that if there's something that has transgressed or sinned against an eternal and perfect God, that there's got to be an eternal consequence for that because that sin has got to be paid for as long as that being uh, is in existence. So essentially, what you've got is you need an eternal solution to an eternal problem that has been paid for by this eternal God by becoming a temporal man who lived and died and rose again to pay an eternal price for your sins. So um, he didn't just tell you how to do it. He came down here and did it for you because he knows that you can't. And at the end of the day, if you're looking for a solution to that answer right there, to that question right there, that's that's the answer that you're looking for. Um, this eternal being loves you. He gave his life for you. And he's calling out to you right now. All you have to do is repent, turn to Jesus. And uh, at the end of the day, um, that's... That's what it takes to be born again. There's there's just nothing that you can do. But Evan, I'm going to leave you with the last word, and then I'm going to go to my closing scene and go from there. Yeah, um, definitely check out my blog, CerebralFaith.net. Well, I mean, it's not just – it used to be just a blog, but now it's a blog. It's a podcast. I got my debates up there. And if you have any intellectual problems with Christianity, you, you have – you have all these questions rattling around in your brain, and you just you don't know how to make heads or tails of it. Yeah, read the articles. Uh, look, at, listen to my podcast episodes. Get get even get some of my books. And hey, don't be afraid to send me an email. I have a Q and A session set up on my website. It's very similar to William Lane Craig's question of the week, where you send me an email and I respond to it in the form of a blog post. I don't reveal your identity. I don't say where you're from or or I, I don't share a picture of you or anything like that. It's just your email and your first name at best, and, and, and I'll even conceal that if you want me to. But um, I'll answer – if I if there's something on the web uh, that – a question or, that you have that has not been addressed, send me an email, cerebralfaith at gmail.com, and I'll write a, a blog post response, and uh, if that's not – if you want, if you want to follow up on that, we can converse in the comment section. Sweet man, thanks for coming on. It, it was, it was good. Maybe we can do something like this again. Uh, but for those of you who are tuning in, check out Evan Minton, 
at uh, Amazon. You can check him out at CerebralFaith.com or his podcast, Cerebral Faith. So I'm going to go ahead, go to our closing scene here, and uh, we'll wrap it up. So uh, once again, guys, this has been another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics, um, a deeper look into the Kalam cosmological argument with uh, author, blogger, podcaster, and uh, just a, an overall um, good guy to talk to, whether it's debates or emails about um, this particular issue. So uh, thanks again to Evan for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Hopefully, uh, and maybe we can do something in the future again. But um, stay tuned, guys, because we are going to follow up. Uh, it should be in um, October sometime with our agnostic atheist friend, uh, Randy Krakowski. Uh, we, we're going to do a follow-up debate on where does morality come from, and uh, we may even entertain the idea of doing a, um, an alternate debate on the, um, the, in, the interest of hell, is hell justified? So those are a couple of topics, a couple of things to consider, but uh, we've also got Timothy Morton uh, in the gap theory. Uh, that's a conversation that should be around the corner in time. Uh, Jeff Riddle said that he's going to come on at some point. We just need to get it scheduled to talk about textual criticism and the ecclesiastical uh, text. Um, anyways, we've got a lot that's in the works, guys. Make sure that you subscribe, that you like, and share this podcast. And, and if you are um, on Apple iTunes, please go in and rate us and give a review. That, that will help uh, bump us in, in, the, in the actual uh, placement of where this podcast shows up anytime somebody does a search. So... Anyways, thanks guys, it's been fun. Later.